Um, last week, we just kind of barely cracked the seal on this uh, on this study, really. We kind of did a, um, a history of Torah, what the Torah was, and, and the impact it, it had, and then it kind of created this conflict, because Paul is now um, seeing a lot of Gentiles getting saved and becoming Christians, um, and a group of, uh, we find out they were Pharisees, a group of uh, Christian Jews um, came up to Antioch, and Antioch was at this point um, the more Gentile of the kind of two main churches. There was the Jerusalem church and the Antioch church were kind of the two big hubs, and Antioch was definitely more Gentile. That was where the church kind of got its name, Christian, which was actually a Greek name. Christ is a Greek word for the for the Jewish concept of Messiah, and so they kind of gave him a Greek name in Antioch, and it kind of stuck. But um, they have this conflict, and what these Pharisees are saying is that now that you are um, following a Jewish rabbi, the Jewish Messiah, and you're studying Jewish scripture, and you're gathering around a Jewish Shabbat table, like, it only makes sense that you kind of finish the deal and kind of become a Jew. Like, get circumcised, join, you know, your, it, it seems to make sense. And, you know, a lot of times we tend to think these guys are the bad guys, but we do this. When someone, you know, the dedicates their life to God, you know, our immediate next move is, okay, now there's some things you probably want to do. You probably want to get plugged into a church. You should have a good Bible. Start reading your Bible. Start praying. You know, we have this, this kind of, you know, kind of complete the deal, you know, thing that once somebody puts their faith in Jesus, you know, we we now, and that's, that's all these Pharisees are doing. They're like saying, okay, well, you're now following a Jew. You're reading Jewish scripture. That was the only scripture there was yet. So you're following a Jew. You're reading Jewish scripture. You're starting to celebrate some Jewish rituals. Uh, you know, Passover was a, I mean, the, the Last Supper that became the communion table, the Eucharist, was a, it was a Passover dinner that they were having, you know, and that was a Jewish thing, so they're, they're now, it just naturally became part of the, the Sabbath, you know, Shabbat meal was to, to bring um, the communion into that, and so they're, they're doing some very Jewish things, it's a pretty natural for these Pharisees to say, okay, well, mate, you're now Jews, let's, let's complete the deal, which includes circumcision, and includes kind of an adherence to Torah, and Paul didn't agree, and it becomes kind of a conflict. Uh, between Paul and uh, and this Pharisee group, and and the, it gets a little bit heated, and they can't come to an agreement. Um, so they decide they're going to go to Jerusalem and seek the advice of the apostles, and, and it becomes the very first church council. We call it the Council of Jerusalem, and it was the very first church council. And um, and the reason they did this is because this was a major issue. This was kind of the big deal, and I would argue. This is still kind of the big deal. Like this, what we're going to talk about tonight is really, um, it's really kind of everything in terms of the Christian life. It, it, it's going to alter how you relate to God, how you relate to yourself, how you relate to other people, how you relate to your circumstances, and definitely how you relate to the Scripture and the Torah. And so they go down, and from what we can tell, when they got Jerusalem, it got pretty heated because it says that after much dispute, like after great dispute, Peter stands up. And so sounds like they probably debated it out for quite some time um, before they kind of bring us into the conclusion of the thing is what we kind of believe. And so 
Um, we're going to pick up kind of after they've argued for a while, and Peter steps up. Go ahead. Um, and it says, And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. So Peter starts by talking about this kind of validating um, appearance of the, of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about this as we've gone to these times when the when the apostles were kind of confused and they weren't really necessarily ready for the gospel to go to this next group of people. Um, and they would be, you know, like almost concerned. Like, I don't think they're supposed to be able to get saved. The Holy Spirit would fall. And it would be something tangible. We don't know exactly what was happening. But something that they could not deny was happening to where they have to go, okay, well, God is obviously doing something and I can't deny it. So Peter brings that back up. But then he sends it to a little bit more of a theological level. This is where it gets kind of fun. Um, he does point out there's no distinction, and that Gentiles are purified exactly like Jews are uh, by faith. But then he kind of flips it in the next verse. Go ahead and do the next slide. And he says, But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. So it feels like he gets this a little backwards at first, because the Jews got there first. And so it feels like he would say that they're going to be saved the same exact way that we are, but he actually turns that over and says, we're hoping that we get saved the same way that they did. And here's what, here's what I think is happening here. It's, it's, it's kind of cool. Um, if you go back to Acts 10, we talked about this when it happened. Go ahead and put up the next slide. We talked about this when it happened. Peter's preaching to Cornelius and his family. And he goes back and he talks about who Jesus was and what he did while he was here and, and the things that he said and the way that they treated him. He tells them about the, the, his death on the cross, and he tells them about the resurrection. And then um, it says, uh, that phrase I have underlined, um, uh, where is it at? It says, the, to him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will, meet, will receive the remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell. So it's like, this, and we talked about this, like this, it's almost like the second, they were just hanging there waiting for the how. Waiting for that, like, how does this happen? What, are, what is the process here? And the second Peter says, whoever believes gets their mission of sin, it's almost just like it happens. They were believing, like, as they were hearing the words. Because the second they, he says the words that this is kind of the currency of the kingdom, that faith is kind of the way this happens, the Holy Spirit felt false. So we have to assume that in hearing those words, they kind of took them to heart, immediately believed, and the Holy Spirit fell. And here's what, here's what's neat. The, the juxtaposition for Peter here would have been interesting because he spent his life waiting for a Messiah, waiting for the Messiah. Right? It was part of the Jewish narrative that was that you know the Messiah is eventually coming, right? And so that's part of your makeup that this guy is eventually going to show up. And then you meet Jesus. And he asks you to come follow him as a rabbi. And so you're excited to be counted as a disciple to a rabbi. You start to follow. You see these miracles. You hear this teaching about faith being like a mustard seed. And, and you get kind of rebuked any time your faith isn't strong. And, and so you, you live with him. And you come to a point, and we know this point, when Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
But so you know that there's this point at which this guy now fits this thing that you had in your head, right? And so now Jesus is this Messiah you've been waiting for. Only Peter had it wrong because he was expecting like a military kind of combatant Messiah. Um, and so the cross rocks him, and he and he kind of runs, and he's you know that they weren't expecting that part. I mean, all the way up to the garden, right before Jesus is arrested, Peter's pulling a sword, and like here we go, it's time, you know, right on, it's time to overthrow. And Jesus turns himself in. That doesn't fit what Peter was thinking, so he gets kind of shaken by that. But obviously, the resurrection undoes all that. Jesus shows back up, and Peter is like, I watched you die, right? And so that, so something real happens in Peter, it starts to and reshape the way, so now he's got to think back about all the scriptures that talk about the Messiah, obviously that's his ability, he's rethinking things, but the big thing to catch is never to a guy like Peter would faith in Jesus have felt like a conversion. It wouldn't have, it would have just felt like a completion of what you've been expecting your whole life, right? And so, because it would be like us, it would be like a kid um, who believes in his heart that Santa's real, and then he sees Santa, it would have just felt like it would have felt like, yes, I knew it. Like, you know, it wouldn't have felt like, you know, suddenly, oh, God, I have something totally different I have to believe in. No, it's just it's a completion of what you've always like, kind of believed in your heart. And so that's kind of what it's like to Peter. So the Jews would have had this um, this big backstory that would have that would have fed in. It wouldn't have been a full-blown conversion. So then Peter sees Cornelius get saved. And Cornelius doesn't have the backstory. He doesn't have Abraham in his past. He doesn't have Moses. He doesn't have an Exodus. He doesn't have a King David. He doesn't have a Torah. And and yet Peter watches the Holy Spirit fall. And so can you imagine the, the like paradigm shift this would have been for Peter? Peter would have been like, holy cow, it's not just the backstory. It's it's faith. It's faith. And so this would have been kind of revealing to Peter. So when Peter says one of the next slide is actually the same slide. When Peter says that we're hoping we get saved in like manner as they do, he's he's saying, I saw because it would have been muddy for a Jew. It would have been hard to tell like at what point and we have this issue. Like there's some people as Christians, second like second, third generation Christians who, if they're honest with themselves, can't remember a day they didn't believe in Jesus. Like they might know a point at which they kind of took it seriously. But when your kids kind of raise you, your parents kind of raise you praying and they raise you around Jesus, you know, it's sometimes some of those people kind of struggle with that. I don't know at what point, I, you know, it's because it's just part of the whole narrative. That's the way it would have been for a Jew. It would have made it a little muddy in the understanding. But when Peter saw Cornelius, he say, it would have become clear. Like, this is a faith thing. This isn't like a, like a Jewish narrative, a, a completion. This, there's something in faith. And so... He draws this conclusion that we both, it's faith for us too, for us Jews too. Nothing changed. It's faith for us Jews. It's faith for those Gentiles because I saw it happen. I saw a guy put his faith in Jesus and I saw the Holy Spirit come down. So that would have been a, a, like a completing theology for Peter. So he kind of lays this out right off the bat. It's what Paul's talking about, this kind of faith process. Let's go to the next one. In Ephesians 2, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And you can't say, I, I go back to this verse all the time, because you can't say any clearer than that. You've been saved through faith, because of the incredible, undeserved favor of God. 
You can't take any credit for it. God just gives it to us. There's no amount of right living, effort, or sacrifice, or discipline that could produce a deserving stature. Like, you can't do anything for this. Nothing. There's absolutely zero in your life that you can point to and say, that's what warrants this treatment. There's nothing. You can't brag about a single thing in your life. It's all grace, all God, period. And this is one of the biggest things we can grasp. Because everything that follows hinges on this point. The way you interact with everything that follows, especially Torah, is hinging on this one point. And this is probably the point we have the hardest time with. Because we want to feel like we do something. There has to be a reason we sacrifice, right? There has to be a reason we do things, we give, and we, we act like we're supposed to give. But Paul makes it very clear. This is just grace. It's just the unmerited favor of God for us. So when James takes over here in Acts 15, not yet, when James takes over, Peter's already established that salvation is by faith. It's by faith, it's by faith, it's by faith, period. He kind of lays out both sides. He says that we're, the Jews are getting saved the same way the Gentiles are, by faith. So you would think that salvation is by faith, then what's the big deal? What's the argument over, right? Like, what's the, what's the struggle here? Why not just pitch Torah and move on, right? It's did its job, it served its purpose, we're done with it, right? Because it's by faith now. And, and we've now all gotten the revelation, Jews are saved by faith, Gentiles are saved by faith, so the Torah is done. But that is never even on the table. That's what's interesting here. Um, nothing Jesus said ever indicated that Torah, and I'm using the word Torah because that's um, the Jewish word. It's, I'm talking about the whole Old Testament. I'm talking about the Ten Commandments. I'm talking about the, just the package of, the, of what we were given, what we, the branch we were grafted into. We talk about that in Romans 11. We're going to get into that a little bit in a minute. Um, Jesus never gave any indication that this was going to go away, that the Torah was going to be gone. Um, and so we had so something in this discussion here, something in what's going on in Acts 15, is just about Torah. It's not about salvation. Peter just lays that out right off the bat. Before they go any farther, Peter just clears that up. He says, salvation is by faith. Like, you remember when I preached to the Gentiles and the Holy Spirit fell. We can't deny that. That's, that's done. But before we can move on, before he can move on, before we can go anywhere with Torah... This has to be established. I don't know how else to put that. Because, um, because, well, we'll go on. We'll get there. I want to get ahead of myself. So why Torah? Let's go ahead and go to the next slide. Why do we need Torah? Why keep it? First of all, we talked last week, this is what defines Judaism. This is what makes a Jew a Jew. This is their constitution. It's their legal system. It's their FDA. It's their Department of Education. It's their social services. Like, this is the understanding of what it means to be a Jew. And so this, it's also their religious text and their, um, and their uh, history. Like, this is what it means to be a Jew. It's the primary, and it's also, like, the main way that they know everything that's happening in the church at the time is real. Like, it's the validating text for everything that's happening. They're finding validation, and you see them happen. Every single, every single time God does something new, they go, oh, 
this is what was written before. So this, this is also the text that's validating everything that's going on in the church. So for the Jews, getting rid of the Torah was never on the table. We've got to know that right off the bat. This was never like part of the question. Like They were working off an assumption of Torah. Okay, they were working off an assumption of this is what it means for us to be a Jew. And, and so that's never a question. We have to know that right off the bat. Maybe they're figuring out how to relate to it differently. Maybe they're, um, they're interpreting it uh, more honestly for the first time. Because when Jesus comes in and he says things like, uh, love God and love people, and this is wrapped up the entire um, law and prophets. You know, so for the first time, they might be going, huh. If we're not coming out of it with this conclusion, then we're missing something. So they're probably revisiting Torah for sure, and they're probably looking at it differently and, and reimagining it, but getting rid of it was never even in consideration. It had been around for, like this had kind of been the Jewish narrative for 1,500 years. This is all they know. So the Torah is here to say that the only thing on the table is the Gentiles' relationship to it. How are the Gentiles supposed to relate to this text, which includes all of these rules, these laws, these, the, and this, even the Ten Commandments. Like everything that we think of as kind of the moral rules is wrapped up in this. And so the, what's on the table at this council is how you and I are supposed to relate to that. Paul puts it um, in Galatians this way. And this is just talking about the, the, go ahead and go to the next one, the Jews and the, and the Gentiles as people. This is kind of fun. He says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many as are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So this, and this is, we've got to be careful with this passage, because this passage kind of makes it sound like we're all one kind of big amorphous mass of you know, believers, and then we're kind of all one big thing. And, and generally, what's ironic is we as Gentiles would go, see, there's no difference. They should act like us. Like, we're all doing the same thing. And a Jew would go, you're actually right. There's no difference. You should be Jews. Like, we're all one. We're all one in Christ. And God's used the Jew for 1,500 years, so why wouldn't you just absolutely join and become a Jew? Like, it only makes sense. We've been the people of God for a very, very long time. Now we're all one group. Come on in. Join Torah. That's what's happening here. And that's what's at question. What's ironic is in, uh, even though Paul says um, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentiles, he's obviously talking about salvation, like in, in, our, in our acceptance to God. Because he also said there's no male or female, and it doesn't take much of a medical examination to figure out there actually is still a difference between male and female. Um, and just like there's still a difference between Jew and Gentile, just not in God's acceptance to us. That part has been broken down. That part has been separated. And this bears out in our text today because every time they talk about dealing with this, let's go to the next slide. Every time they talk about dealing with this, um, he says, therefore I judge uh, that we should not trouble those among the Gentiles uh, who are turning to God. And when they write their letter, they said, they wrote this letter to them, to the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in these cities. So they keep referring to the Gentiles as Gentiles. They don't write a letter to the churches or to the Christians or to the believers. So they're still, they're still separating in their understanding of how these two groups relate, um, even though they're one in the eyes of God in terms of 
their acceptance of God, it's still faith, it's still grace, it gets them saved, there's still kind of a distinction. And that's what we have to make sure we're clear on. So they keep referring to the Gentiles as Gentiles, as kind of distinct. And this bears out in all the prophecies. If you make it one group, some creepy things can happen. Like you can get the Crusades for one, where you get a big batch of kind of power-hungry Gentiles who feel like they have ownership of a piece of land that was given to the Jews. And they, they feel like they can just take it because we've kind of replaced, it's like a replacement theology. We, now that we are the people of God, that's our land. You know, and so you, so some bad things can happen if we don't understand God's relationship to the Jewish people. And then it is, even though he accepts us equally, it is distinct from a Gentile relationship in some of the original promises in the land in, in the Torah. Okay? So, that's one thing to say. And, and this is important because in Romans 11, it tells us that we've been grafted on to uh, a, an existing branch, like a branch that was already here. And a lot of times we, um, actually an interesting sent me an email this week, and she said, I feel like sometimes we've hijacked the branch. And I love that phrase has been in my head all week. I love that, that idea. It feels like we pretend like this is just our narrative. And, and it's not. There's, a, there's a, a bigger story that we've been grafted into. We've been kind of plugged into a story that was already here. And so, uh, with this distinction comes the realization that we're not Jews, and we're not supposed to be Jews. And really what this whole council determines is that one question. Gentiles are not supposed to be Jews. At the end of this thing, that's what they call way. And we are not supposed to be Jews. We're, we're, we have no like covenantal responsibility to Torah. That's what they decide here. Um, and this always brings up a question. The second you start talking like this, so we do not have to keep the law. And you say that. We do not have to keep the law. Which always brings up the questions. So can I live however I want and still be a Christian? Does it matter how I live or what I do? If salvation is not on the table when it comes to Torah, can a Christian sin as much as they want and still be a Christian? And here are my answers. Yes, you can live however you want and still be a Christian. No, it does not matter how you live. And yes, you can sin as much as you want and still be a Christian. That hard to hear? I guess most of us that's pretty hard to hear and we want to rebut that. But to move on, I really feel like you have to get that point. I really feel like that is essential to know. Because your relationship to God and His Word is going to change depending on how you deal with this. Because if you do a grace but, if you go, it's all, all on grace, but, that doesn't mean, it's not grace. Grace is only grace if it's completely undeserved. The second you go, yeah, but I have to, I really, at least I have to do this, I at least I have to do that, then it's not grace anymore. You're now at least in this one little way, earning it. Right? Grace is grace. And if I'm right, if this is true, then it obviously begs the question, then why? Why live right? Why do anything good? Why give? Why serve? Why do anything? And this is when Torah truly gets beautiful. And it's because the reason we do those things is because we're invited to Period. We're invited to. 
And this is where it gets fun. If you take salvation off the table, which we have, we have. When you, when you deal with the rules, salvation is off the table. It has nothing to do with it. Once you've taken the salvific aspect out of Torah, out of the law, out of the rules, you're left with the question of, then do I believe this is still the best way to live? Do I believe God knows what he's doing when he gives me these rules? Because I get nothing from them in terms of eternity. That's off the table. That's faith. That's grace. That's just the love of a God who would do anything for us, who would send his son to the cross for us. Period. So we're left with the question, do I believe God? When God says, this is the best way to live. This is, you know, in this broken world that's crumbled by sin, I have given this prescription for the way to live. Then every single like connection we have to Torah becomes a faith move. It's no longer this like responsibility burden thing. Now it's faith. Now it's it's basically we hit a thing and I'm like, I really want to do this thing. And the Bible says I shouldn't. Like and I can go ahead and either way. So now I'm left with the question, do I trust me or do I trust God? And it's a faith it's a faith decision. This is why the scripture can say the just shall live by faith. That every decision, every move, every step becomes a faith move. Because we're justified. The justified then get to say, do I believe God? Do I trust him? Do I trust he knows best? And so suddenly we find the Torah not being this burdensome law that weighs us down like this thing that's constantly ready to pick on our every mistake. Now we suddenly have this, this kind of gorgeous outline that God has given us for a successful life, for a happy life, and which is why he says things like, if you will obey these things, you will live long in the land and you will prosper. Like, it's this gorgeous invitation by somebody who knows infinitely more about life than we do to live well. And to do right. And sometimes it goes against us more. Like, I don't want to do those things. I want to do these things. I had a story uh, that I read. Um, actually, somebody liked it on Facebook. And it, the title grabbed me because the title was, God Did Not Make Me Strict. That was the title. And so I, um, I was intrigued and I opened it up and read it. There was a woman who um, uh, decided late in high school that she was a homosexual. And she went to college and got connected with a, um, a girl there and fell into a couple different relationships with other women. And I think her sophomore, junior year, she meets a group of Christians and she's intrigued by them and hangs out with them for a while and eventually becomes a Christian. And immediately, you know, it's like, okay, apparently I've got to put this part of my life aside and I can't do that anymore. And she actually tried to be straight for a little while and it didn't work and... And she kept finding herself falling back into these relationships with women. And so, toward the end of her graduate studies, she meets a guy. And uh, they become like best friends. And they hang out everywhere. And she could kind of tell he was getting romantically involved. But, um, but she didn't... Uh, and she kept trying to say, this is not going to happen. you just got to put this to sleep. This is not going to happen. And he was persistent. And finally, at the end of their 
graduate studies, he proposes. And at this point, she'd been a Christian for three and a half, four years, and she had grown a lot. And and she said, she told him, let me pray about it. And she uh, spent some time uh, praying, and she said she was confronted in the scripture with the idea that God's plan for marriage might be best. Like, and, and so she goes back to him and says yes. And, and she says, you have to know who I am. Um, and she said, that was, it's in the article. She, finished it. she goes, so we were married on this date. Blah, blah, blah. And she goes, it's been 20 years now. And we have, I think, three kids. Three kids that I am madly in love with. And my husband and I, um, we have a healthy sex life. And she goes, but to this day, when I'm attracted by somebody outside my marriage, it's always a woman. And she goes, I don't think I'm any less gay today than I was the day I got saved. She said, but I put my faith in God's plan that this is the best way to live. And she goes, and now that I have my children and I have the wife that I have and this life that my husband and I built together, I am glad I trusted God's plan. I'm glad that I just put my faith in his way, because nothing in me wanted to go that way. And if I had gone the way, gone the way I wanted to go, I wouldn't have had any of these blessings. We all do this with some of the you know, giving is a, is a big one. We all do this with giving. Like none of us want to give. Like it's, and there's nobody that's ever been like, man, I got 10 percent extra money. I don't know what to do with it. I guess I'll give it to the church. None of us ever do that. Like it's a discipline, and, and, and something in us is saying, Okay, God is God has said this is the way it should be. I'm just going to trust Him to do it. Like, and most of us, when we start giving, that's exactly the way it happens. At some point, that is what Torah is supposed to be. It's supposed to be God saying, "This is how to have the best life," and we get to decide. If we trust him, if we have faith in him. And that's what it means to live by faith. Every single day. Because if if you if you do really well and you live a good and godly life, it doesn't mean slop in terms of eternity. The cross does that. Only the cross does that. Period. And and, and your your whole relationship to Torah changes when you look at it as these things that you have to do, these rules that are expected of you, this, like, demand that's put on you, when suddenly you can go, uh, I don't know what to do with my life. You know, I want to do this thing, I don't know if that's right, and you go to Torah. And Torah says, this is the way you should live. You should, you should not harvest all of your fields. You should leave some for other people to glean and... and you know, and so you, you take this idea that I'm supposed to share and I'm supposed to be generous and courteous to the poor. Okay, I'll do it. Torah says I should do it. Okay, you should be kind to the foreigners in your land and because you used to be foreigners in someone else's land. And you say, okay, I'll do it. It scares me, but I'll do it. You know, it says, it puts these sugge- like suggestions or offers from a God who knows the world. And we're given the freedom uh, to know whether or not to do that. So, in our passage, um, 
This is the conclusion they come to. Gentiles have no uh, burden, no uh, covenantal responsibility to Torah, but we're offered it, which is, I think, why he does this. Let's go to the next slide. I think this is what... Okay, go to the next slide. Must have missed that one. I think that's why he does this. He says, For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogue every Sabbath. It's almost like James is saying, we don't have to sign them up, circumcise them, bring them in, because the Torah is out there. And it's always out there. I don't think the assumption was, was that the Gentiles are going to want to follow this thing. Like the assumption is like, of course they're going to, like, they just signed up their life to, to this Savior, to this, this Messiah, of course they're going to want to go get everything they can from Torah. And Torah is preached every Sabbath. And I mean, we find out every time Paul went to a synagogue to, to talk, there was Gentiles there. So they were already being attracted to Torah. So it's almost like James is saying, we don't have to sign them up. They're going to get Torah. It's preached every week. They're going to hear it. They're going to learn it. They're going to... Like it's out there for them. There's like an invitation instead of a burden. Let's go back to Ephesians 9. This is what I this is this is what I love as far as the completion. Let's go to the next one. So we read uh, verses eight and nine a second ago. First, by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Where is workmanship? He made us. He knows what's best for us. He knows the good path we should follow. And the assumption is, given the freedom to be out from under the pressure of salvation, then of course we would desire to follow God. Like, that's the assumption that of course, who wouldn't follow Torah? Like, who wouldn't want to put their faith in God? I mean, assuming that he's the one we're trying to follow anyway. So how do we respond to this? First, I mean, verse 28, I love, um, you know, he said, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us that we should do these things. Like, the humility that they have even as apostles, not to go, thus says the Lord, in this big kind of, you know, yeah, humility to go, this is what honestly seems best to us. As we debate it, and as we talk, and as we seek God, it feels like this is what the Holy Spirit is leading us to do. Um, and so I hope we can respond to this with that kind of humility. Like, to understand that this is, this is a big subject, and I know, you know, we all fall in different places because some people are like, no, there are certain rules that have to be kept and blah, blah. And I get that. I get that temptation. And it's a scary thing to say, no, you can do whatever you want. You can, as Luther said it this way, go sin boldly and then believe in Jesus' forgiveness boldly too. Like his sacrifice for you. And that's hard. Like not many people want to say that. But until you're willing to own that part, that this is all grace, all grace, all grace. Can you go back to Scripture and say, now 
I can engage Torah by faith. Because I know it's beautiful. I know this is God's awesome plan. And I know this is best. The second thing, and this is good news. This is why it's good news. This is why it's gospel. This is what's different. Otherwise, what we wind up with is we're like, if we have a grace but, we wind up with, number one, trying to find that arbitrary line by which you can, you can mess up, but if you go this far, you can mess up too far. Like, now you're out. And, and trying to draw this funny line of exactly where you're allowed to mess up and where you're not. But ultimately, what we wind up with is a system that's really not that much different than just a law-based system, right? Because it's like, I, I totally believe in Jesus, I just absolutely have to do these things the same way. What's the real difference there? What's the impact that Jesus has made, if that's the case? But when you know that Jesus has made you righteous, his, his death has paid the price. It's, it's all grace at that point. Now the Bible can be beautiful. Now the Torah can be this, uh, this demonstration of God's love for us. This demonstration of how much he cares for us. That he would say, <laughs> and if, you, if you're a dad, mother, you know what this is like. And you're like, God, son, please. I know I seem old, and I know I seem like I'm not a dear anymore, but I promise if you're staying in these dialogues, you're going to be so much better. And I've had a couple of my sons, I've now gotten to that point where a couple of them all have to go, yeah, I should listen. <laughs> I probably should listen. And that's what this is. It's God saying, just, just trust me. Just trust me with this. And that's when it becomes beautiful. This brings up 10,000 questions. It always does. Whenever you start talking about exactly how to implement this, you know, we all go, wait a minute, I love bacon. So don't get too weird with obeying Torah. Um, and maybe you're not even that familiar with Torah, but I can tell you where to start. Because Jesus told us where to start. He said, if you want to know the law and the prophets, you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love other people. And if you get this, you'll ultimately get Torah. So I mean, if you don't know where else to start, start there. <laughs> love God with everything you have, and love other people. And chances are you're going to catch most of the time anyway. The last way we need to um, respond is just in worship, in all honesty. We have an awesome God who has taken really good care of us. If he's, he sent Jesus for us. I mean, just, a, just this overwhelming love for us. And he's also uh, cares enough to give us guidelines, to give us boundaries and, and, and advise us to walk in them. And, you know, doesn't dump us and get angry when we, when we don't. He gives us this beautiful invitation. And so our only response to that can be just worship. And thank you, God, for loving us so much. And if the, if the Torah, if the law, whatever dirty word you want to make up for it that we generally use, if the law doesn't inspire worship in you, then you're not looking at it, right? Then you miss it. If, if, if something in you is like, how oh, do I obey all those rules? Like if, and if your response isn't worship, then you miss it. You didn't, you didn't interpret it right. You didn't get it. Because it should make us 
Because that's what the Jews did. Like, the way we respond, we talked about this a little, bit, a little bit last week. The way we respond to law, when we talk about law, it's always like this bad thing that the cross got us out of. Right? But for some reason, the Jews were like, like dying to make this covenant. Right? Like, they, like when you read that passage, Moses is like, here, here's what's going to happen if, if you make this covenant. This is what it means. And they're like, we're in. We want to be the people of God. Because like, they saw the beauty of it. And so if it doesn't drive us to worship, then we miss it. We just didn't get it right. Because it should. It should be just all inspiring and beautiful.